Okay, folks, welcome back in to a new episode of Flourish FM. We have a special episode for you today. We recently had an old colleague of mine, Will Roosh, reach out with a question about some of the differences between happiness or well-being and meaning. And this came up because he was having a conversation as a school teacher with some of his young people around this notion of the pursuit of happiness. So Will and I connected, said, hey, let's all have a conversation. John and I would love to speak to this a little bit. And so it's going to be posted here on Flourish FM, but also on Will's podcast, Cylinder Radio. Had a great time, fascinating conversation. Johnny, what were some of the things that you really enjoyed about it? Well, it was really fun just to have a kind of a three-way conversation where it wasn't so much me and you interviewing someone, but just a, a kind of equal conversation and and us getting to then discuss various ideas we have and views we have on flourishing by reference to the, to the research, you know, outlining two particular frameworks, positive psychology and the human flourishing program at Harvard's framework, and then digging in deep some particular areas. I particularly enjoyed the conversations we had about what happiness is, different theories of happiness, and then what its role in education might be in relation to how we define it and whether an evil person can flourish or whether an evil person can even live a meaningful life and what the connection might be between them. That was that was pretty fun. How about you? What did you most enjoy? Yeah, totally agree with both of those. I love getting into sort of those paradoxical questions. And the only sort of one I would add to it is coming back to Anna Lemke's work and some mm-hmm. of the stuff we talked about with Todd Cash in episode one on sort of the presence of unpleasantness and its impact on well-being. So yeah. I think it still is going to be a lot of tangible takeaways for our listeners. I know Will really enjoyed it. We really enjoyed chatting with him. Uh, so without further ado, here's our conversation with Will Roosh. What's happening, Will? How you doing, man? It's good to see you. It's good to see um, you again. How you been? Good. Been good. 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 I start on Thursday back in the classroom, so. Nice. Well, I thought maybe we'd start out, first of all, John, Will, Will, John. Hey, Will. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. So, Will, just for a little bit of context, too, because we haven't caught up. I mean, when we no. had that initial conversation, it was like, po- I think ago, the title more. was Positive Psychology in the COVID-19 era. Era, something okay. like that. I mean, it was it was right at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. I think and I were home from school, uh, just, you know, teaching remotely, all those sorts of things. But John and I have really kind of tried to round out a focus more on human flourishing more holistically. Cool. So that's involved working with a lot of different entities, a lot of different researchers. And that's where the podcast has come in. Right. So yeah. Uh, um, we're all educators, but you know, when I saw your particular post about the distinctions between happiness and meaning and purpose and things of that nature, I thought, well, this, you know, this is right in John's wheelhouse. I love what you're doing. It's been fun for me, um, knowing what you were doing before the pandemic to see the way you've sort of opened up and expanded yourself and really dealing with some of these, uh, critical issues. And I don't know if you remember, but yeah. I taught a, a sociology class for a decade at Milken called Race, Class, and mm-hmm. Gender. So a lot yeah, of the topics yeah. you're getting into hit home for me. And anyway, just really enjoying it. And, and I'm glad we can have this conversation. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me, man. Sure. I would say just the, the biggest thing is uh, there's I teach a civics class. Um, and I don't know if you remember, um, Nick, but um, John, I teach a civics class and I teach bring philosophy into it. And I start with like, you know, early, you know, evolution and stuff like that to understand where we came from, then, you know, where should we go type of stuff. And I play them some Kid Cudi, you know, um, Pursuit of Happiness. And I talk about, you know, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is in our our Declaration of Independence and stuff. And it's like, 
is happiness the thing you should be aiming for? Because that's something that's told to these young people. It's told to them on TikTok. It's told to them all through social media is do what makes you feel good. And I have all these like memes up. Do what makes you feel good. And I say like, let's break that down a little bit. And I guess what I'm concerned about, curious, I'm going to just to pick your brains and let you guys run with this idea is I'm worried that when you do that, you can find happiness by just hacking your you know, your happy chemicals, your dopamine and whatnot, like in your brain, you just take a pill and you're happy. You could live a hedonistic lifestyle and you're happy. You could just have sex with, you know, someone and it could destroy your whole life. You're married with kids or whatever, but you're pursuing that momentary happiness. Is that going to be something that's good for you? Is that a message that we should be giving kids? Because I remember hearing that as a kid, like, what's the the point of life? The meaning of life is, or the point of life is just to be happy and find happiness. And it's like, hmm. No, I don't know if that's happiness. I feel like people aiming for happiness are going to be are going to um are going to spiral off into something really um negative and perhaps it is more meaning, you know, aligned with Nietzsche or even um Viktor Frankl, you know, talks about that a lot, you know, searching for meaning and having meaning and things like that. So, just what kind of message are we going to give to young people when they're bombarded with this do what makes you feel good stuff? Watch TikTok. It's a lot of that stuff, you know, and then it leads to, you know, pornography addiction that a lot of, I think a lot of young men have and and all that kind of stuff. So just curious, I, I just would love to have a conversation about what you guys think yeah. and how we can flush this yeah. out better. For sure. It's a great question. I mean, John, obviously jump in here. My immediate thoughts are we might kind of divide this into three buckets that come to mind, which is the psychology of happiness, the neuroscience of happiness, and also the philosophy of happiness. Because my immediate response is, well, it depends on what you mean by happiness, right? And we can break that down into, as scientists do and researchers do, into probably (laughs) way too many different concepts and constructs. But I think it's useful for this conversation. So if it sounds good to you both, maybe we just kind of like tease apart each of those buckets a little bit first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's start. I mean, you mentioned a key word to me, which is hedonism, right? So hedonism in the science and the literature is one type of happiness. So when you say let's pursue happiness, the pursuit of happiness is a core value. Hedonism might be one form of that. What is hedonism? Simplistically, it's really just a balance of pleasant and unpleasant affect, right? So some of your examples in any given moment, you might have more pleasantness than unpleasantness. And in that moment, you might be hedonistically happy, right? There's other forms like subjective well-being, which are a combination of hedonism and life satisfaction, life satisfaction is going to be a little bit more stable, right? So in your classroom, a kid fails your civics test, they might be hedonistically unhappy in that moment. Does that change their subjective well-being because it manipulates their life satisfaction? I'm not so sure. If it keeps them out of the college they want to go to, maybe. If it's just a blip on the radar, maybe not. That's very different than what I studied for my dissertation, which is eudaimonia or eudaimonia, depending on who you want to uh, pronounce it for you, which is more of a meaning-based happiness, right? Mm -hmm. It's virtue cultivation. It's purpose-driven. It's about impact and contribution to the greater good. There are some scholars that argue hedonism and eudaimonia are not distinct, that they're the same. There's plenty of scholars that argue the opposite. They are distinct. And I I would be one of those. I think that they are quite distinct. 
All of that's different than life satisfaction. And then all of that's different than human flourishing, which we can come back to in a little bit. But that that's sort of the psychological premise. Like, what do we mean by happiness? And then how do we pursue it? I, I want to pause here, give John a chance to either add to that or speak to it from the philosophical lens. But we should also come back to the neuroscience piece, right? Because you brought up some really interesting tensions that we explored on our podcast with Dr. Anna Lemke, who's an addiction specialist at Stanford. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be, make a lot of sense to speak to some of those dynamics as well. But John, you want to jump in here first? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So, yeah, kind of the, I guess the logical place to start is with trying to clarify what exactly we mean by happiness here. And I guess one important point to make is that on some definitions of happiness, paradoxically, it involves some degree of unhappiness. So we recently interviewed Arthur Brooks, Proud podcast, kind of one of the world's leading happiness experts. He has this tripartite definition of happiness. And one of the parts of it is that long term happiness, and really that's how he defines happiness happiness in the long term, your your life Mm -hmm. as a whole, rather than some immediate sense of gratification for a day or even a week, something that's going to last such that you feel a sense of life satisfaction or gain a sense of life satisfaction and fulfillment from it, would involve some degree of suffering towards, for example, some life purpose or some long-term goal. And so paradoxically, happiness can involve some degree of unhappiness in the short term because suffering is never pleasant. But the long-term benefits of some degree of suffering, which may come as a result of striving, will you know, yield some longer-term yeah. emotions such as happiness. So there can be some negative emotion in the short term on the pursuit towards longer-term life satisfaction. He defines happiness. This is one of the parts of it. So when we start to define happiness, perhaps in that kind of way, encouraging that to be one of, or even perhaps the aim of education, or the well-being of education for students starts to look a little less controversial, because we're not worried about students feeling really happy every day all the time. It's like, no, you could spend years striving towards this long-term goal, which is doing the best you can at school or really trying to find your sense of meaning that's going to then shape the rest of your life. And that involves a great deal of struggle and striving. But that's because your aim is, one of your aims, or perhaps your aim, is happiness overall. So, yeah, how controversial it looks to say the aim, or one of the aims of education is happiness, as Nick rightly points out, depends on how we define it. And some definitions will look more controversial than others the hedonistic definition will look more controversial than others yeah yeah i think for young people because i was saying i play that kid cuddy song and i put the lyrics up and it's like whatever crush a bit blah 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 it's like about doing drugs and it's like driving drunk just doing my thing it's like yeah so it's like let's go like that so so i think a lot of i don't know how many teenagers how many 17 year olds are breaking it down even like we just did just in five minutes i'm like yeah what is happy i think they connected to that whatever dump of happy chemicals and it's like well <laughs> driving drunk until you run a red light and you kill a woman and her two kids in the car <laughs> like 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 there, there are there are negative repercussions to your actions and i think that that's just like trying to I think that's just, yeah, even just flushing it out of like different kinds of happiness and even asking a, a teenager, that's a 16 year old, like, what do you mean by happy? Like even just, a that's a pretty basic question, but you can see like how complex it is. I mean, this is something that you studied for years and years and years at a top university level. It's not simple. So I think just like any kind of you know, flushing things out to get more nuances is always seems like the goal. That's what I'm always interested in and promoting. Yeah. 
Yeah. And to John's point, right, some of this. So first of all, let's be clear about a couple of things. There is an argument to be made for the presence of pleasantness, right? Like that, there's all sorts of good research on how that opens us up. There's a great theory in pause psych, the broaden and build theory from Barbara Fredrickson that talks about how that opens us up to different experiences. We know from research on the big five personality tests that openness to experience is correlated with all sorts of positive life outcomes, right? We know that when we feel loved, we're more likely to give love in return, for instance, right? So there's there's plenty to be said for the presence of pleasantness. There's also plenty to be said for the presence of unpleasantness. And here's where we can kind of come back to the neuroscience. So in our conversation with Anna Lemke, and again, I mentioned she's the addiction specialist at Stanford. She's got a wonderful book called Dopamine Nation. And anyone listening, I highly, highly, highly recommend you check it out. The basic idea is this, the constant and perpetual pursuit of what we might loosely call happiness, which would be that dopamine drive, check the notification, check the email, play the video game, watch the pornography, whatever it might be, paradoxically can lead to anhedonia, right? which is the complete opposite of what we mentioned earlier, hedonism, right? Mm -hmm. It actually locks you out of the ability to experience pleasure. You raise your baseline so high, right, that you actually become incapable of experiencing pleasure as a result. What she suggests instead is that we need to find balance between the two. Doing hard stuff, and there's a great book by this title now, Steve Magnus, I think, right, Do Hard Things, Doing hard stuff over the long term, to John's point, sometimes even the short term, right? A submerging mm -hmm. yourself in a cold tub, for instance, can release some of that same dopamine, but in a healthier way, right? What goes up must come down, but conversely, what goes down must come up. And so she describes it as this teeter-totter, right? Mm -hmm. There are times to say yes, there are times to say no. And we see this in the psychological world as well. A lot of your listeners might be familiar with the marshmallow study or the marshmallow yeah. tests. Yeah. Cute little kids come in, right? And the, the basic idea here is that they have to delay gratification by waiting to eat the marshmallow in front of them in hopes that they'll get a second one, right? And the studies show that over the course of years, the kids who can wait for the second marshmallow and delay gratification, they do better on a whole host of outcomes, okay? So yes, and... Do you spend your entire life waiting for the marshmallow? Sometimes you yeah. got to eat the fucking thing, right? Yeah. So there's this teeter-totter piece again, right, in terms of not only the neurochemistry, but the psychology as well. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard the, the marshmallow thing too. It's like, what is it? There's always all the different ways you can skew it too. Like if you wait like so long, then you get 10 marshmallows. And they wait, you know, like how much of a time for it's, it's really interesting, like just breaking that down. I know there are probably some flaws to that study about where they did it and things like yeah. that. But that's just any social science study is going to yeah. have flaws, right? Because people are just complex. Uh, you know, I, I heard I saw Naval Ravikant say something along the lines of like, you know, the social sciences aren't sciences. It's like, well, it follows the scientific method. It is by definition, right? I don't know. What do you guys think about that? So my PhD professor often would call it a soft science, right? Yeah. It's, it, you're not going to get the same levels of re replicability, right. right, that you might in some of the 
quote unquote, hard science, physics, for instance, but you still can elicit patterns and trends and to a certain extent, generalizations. But he also said, and you you just hit the nail on the head, there is no such thing as a perfect study. So there's always yeah. going to be some caveats. Yeah. Just because of human differences and things like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, to bring this also into human flourishing, so delayed gratification, yeah. so the human flourishing program at Harvard, one of our podcast sponsors, they have a flourishing measure that they've designed with six domains and one of them is character and virtue and they have two items in that questions they ask and one of them is based on delayed gratification the question is or the statement and the item is i'm always able to give up some happiness now for greater happiness later and you rank from zero mm-hmm. being not true of me to 10 completely true of me and that's the reason for including that is based on is rigorous research on well-being research over longitudinal studies on what suggests certain um, good character traits to have or character virtues to have that would suggest they they highly enhance your well-being over time. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth getting, I think, since John brought it up into some of these various components of flourishing, there's really kind of two predominant models out there. And maybe I'll walk us through one of them, the PERMA model. Yeah, I mean, how do they design it? Like, or how, yeah. do, they, how do they measure that? It would be a question. I'll also define it. Yeah, like, how do you define, are you flourishing or not? It's kind of like asking people, are you happy? Are you, are you fulfilled? It's like, compared to what? Like, yeah. compared to me a couple of years ago, yeah. But compared to where I could be, maybe not. This is, yeah, I'm so interested because you guys are are deep in this world of like measuring these things, I guess, that are seemingly immeasurable. That makes sense. But then Einstein has something like that above his office in Princeton, like not everything that counts can be counted or something like that. And I guess you guys are in like the the world of trying to count that stuff. We're trying. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's it's really interesting. Yeah, and, and so I'll walk us through PERMA. John, you walk us through the Harvard model a little bit, but you also just hit, again, hit the nail on the head there. Well, it depends on time point, right? It depends on length of time, but it's also worth mentioning. It very much depends on culture. So we're going to lay out some components that in fairness have come from a lot of studies that I think prototypically are done on weird populations. You know, this acronym weird Western, educated, intellectual, rich, developed nations, right? So, you know, you and I are both married to Asian women, for instance, Mm -hmm. like that orientation towards meaning versus happiness is very different. I don't know about for for you, but for my in-laws, you're going to see a different sort of orientation and conceptualization, right? Yeah. Trying to hold all of that constant, though, or at least set it to the side for the moment, Two primary models of human flourishing out there. I'll walk you through UPenn's model and John can walk you through Harvard's model. So UPenn, the the acronym is PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. And then you will often see adaptations that add a V or an H at the end. So PERMA-V or PERMA-H. P for pleasant emotion. There's your hedonia. That matters. Okay. E for engagement. There's your eudaimonia. So to John's point, character and virtue, but also flow. If you're familiar with the flow state, John and I do a lot of coaching uh, for Flow Research Collective around this state. This is deeply immersive experiences that are autotelic and rewarding. So hobbies, passionate pursuits, things of that nature. R for relationships, right? And different types of relationships. So intimacy, friendship, family, community single greatest predictor of happiness worldwide, right? The quality of our relationships. Second greatest predictor worldwide is the M, 
meaning, a connection to something greater than oneself. The A is achievement. Right? And this is not traditional achievement, like you might think of as awards and accolades and income and all those sorts of things, but developing competency, mastering one's environment, having a sense of self-efficacy and self-esteem and confidence, right? And then the V or the H that you'll often see is health or vitality. So the core physiological pieces, sleep, nutrition, hydration, movement, breath, things of that nature. So coming back to the point you made earlier, a lot of it is about the synergy between these components, right? If you are in love with somebody or married to somebody and your hedonistic tendencies lead you to cheat, well, you might get P, pleasant emotion during that instance, but you're probably going to ruin an R, right? Right. And you might uh, sacrifice some of your sense of character as well. So we're really trying to help people, I think, understand all of these components and think about how they build a synergistic life that really addresses any or all of them. That doesn't mean they all need to be 10 out of 10s all Mm -hmm. the time, right? But bringing those ingredients uh, together to kind of cook, if you will, the recipe that's going to lead to a fulfilling life. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially because balance is something that I'm just, you know, obviously comes up all the time is like need some sort of balance and that that idea of different buckets to try and balance it out so one's not because if one goes up too much it might be at the expense of the other do you generally measure this through like questionnaires yeah because because i had um this like top chimp expert named franz de wall on my podcast it was really fun to talk to him i know franz i mean i don't know him personally but he did the cock monkey grape throwing (laughs) he also coined the term alpha male about like who you know how does like a chimp troop like choose who's in charge and stuff interesting stuff but Uh um but he said the cool thing about chimps is like whatever they're 97 percent human and you can learn about humans from watching them because a lot of humans he gave an example like if you ask a human a questionnaire how often do you have sex like they will write it but it's their interpretation of it even if they're not just like bragging like a like a frat kid or something like that they might interpret something that didn't actually happen because we do that all the time where a, a chimp you can just watch them do it like you can't in psychological studies you can't just like watch people all the time because then they know there's cameras around and then if you did it when they didn't know then it would be immoral and unethical so it's really tricky because people's perception of like how are your relationships if you are a very ignorant person you have no self-awareness i was just in a conversation with someone in my family just the other day and um and i asked them like a very basic question because they said something like you know just being around you triggers me i go why this is something i'm very close to it they go huh I don't know. Like there's just no awareness about like basic things in their life. So aren't they going to answer those, um, those questions? Um, like they might say, so you said like hydration level. So they might say how much you drink. They say a lot. And then you can do a hydration test in a hard science kind of version. And so show actually you don't drink much at all. So how do you, how do you deal with that guys? Like that, that's a tricky thing for me when we're doing these social science things. 100%. John, obviously jump in here at any time. What you're talking about is uh, often referred to as a self-report measure, which a lot of these studies are based on. Mm -hmm. And 100% they have problems with them. And some of the biases involved are the most obvious problems, right? Or an ignorance or a naivete. And at the same time, we know pretty empirically that our subjective experience can actually shift our physiology as well. 
So you can also say, all right, well, how reliable is a self-report measure if these biases can get in? And at the same time, I would just play devil's advocate and push back and say, if somebody subjectively says that they are happy or fulfilled, right, or experiencing meaning, do we care? Perception is reality. And I mean, to some degree, even maybe ignorance is bliss. Like that could, could be, right? 100%. Hundred percent. I, I I'd be curious if that's part of what triggers that family member of of yours because you yeah. are on some level are probably shattering some bubbles for them. Uh, yeah, that's what we eventually got to. But <laughs> yeah, um, But that's uh yeah yeah I guess so. <laughs> yeah, it's John. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, perceptions reality, but also interpretations reality, and the job of a good researcher is to ensure that research is interpreted in responsible and sufficient and correct ways, as well as disseminating that research. So when you do a social science study or a self-report study, you gather quantitative or qualitative research to ensure that you're stating an adequate number of caveats and ensure that people are clear on what they are in terms of how the data is interpreted and that the the data gathering is from a, a diverse and large source. And if it isn't, to state that, you know, in the dissemination of the research. And that, that is what the researchers have, depending on your position, but researchers have a serious responsibility when it comes to disseminating knowledge because some people, many people, will trust the claims of researchers and often with excellent reason, right? It's published in a, in a, yeah. in a respectable yeah. peer-reviewed journal. Why shouldn't they? And if the researcher has good stature. But that does place a lot of responsibility on a researcher to ensure that what they communicate is communicated both clearly and also with sufficient warnings, okay? Don't think that this is, you know, the end story of what happiness is or that if you do this, you'll become more happy or if you do this, you'll become more lonely or less happy, for example. And I've, I've certainly experienced that in educational research mm. since working in educational research the last seven and a half years that teachers and school leaders are extremely busy and um, will often not have the time to, to dig deeper into research articles or research claims that are made. And if you, if you go and give a talk at a school or if you publish a research article in education, that will often be shared around. It will often gain a lot of influence in education. But that requires a lot of responsibility. So an example of this will be Carol Works were a Carol Dweck's work on mindset. Now she's done a great job, I think, of disseminating that very responsibly, but it's been further disseminated down the line by others who haven't disseminated it so responsibly. And sometimes it becomes a satire of what it really is. Yeah. People just, you know, talk about the power of yet on something and think that, you know, if we just train students to add the word yet to the end of sentences, that that's going to cultivate a growth mindset and give them all these new powers to, to help them, you know, fulfill that potential. So I can't do this. No, I can't do this yet. Right. You've got it. Let's go. We got that. That's like tiny bits of a complex system that you need to try to, you know, integrate throughout an education institution for it to really work. And so, yeah, I mean, well, the point I'm making here is really that interpretation of research is vital, but that requires researchers and those further disseminating it to do an important job, a responsible job of carefully getting it out there. Yeah. 
and context is critical too. You know, we already gave one example, like cultural context, but but John's point is well made, right? Carol's research is really about incremental theory of intelligence and entity theory of intelligence. It's not just growth or fixed mindset applied to everything everywhere, right? right? John's sitting in London right now. If I wanted to go share a pint with him, should I have a growth mindset or fixed mindset about my ability to swim there to do that? Right. I should yeah. have a fixed mindset, yeah. right? Like the, the power of yet will do nothing for me there, right? So context is really important here as well. Yeah. 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 I love Carol Dweck stuff. I mean, th- I think people latch on to like the easy, the same way that people read the, the headline and not the article. You know, like what I just want to pull out the basic stuff, you know, so like stuff like uh, like with my my children, I have five or seven and a, and a baby, but say stuff like um, instead of saying you're really smart, like leaning into your hard worker or things like that. Like I try to do those, you know, you're making bad decisions. You're not a bad person. You're making bad decisions to give them more of that kind of thinking. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a complex thing. I love that that concept of uh, of um, of. Depending on what it is, like what you said about swimming over there, you know, it's, I've also heard something similar. Um, I think it's similar, which is like limitations actually give you more freedom. So if I have a kid who's, you know, five foot two and 90 pounds soaking wet to say, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're not going to be an NFL lineman is actually more freeing. For him, because then he's he can look at all the different things that are, are real, like to say, like to a fish, you're limited to water places, you can't go anywhere is actually more freeing because they're not going to they're they're not going to waste time trying to crawl on land or something like that. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Certain limitations can be emancipatory. Yeah. And I like giving that to, to young people, because when they're told again, they're told you can do anything, you can be anything. That leads to a lot of kids, especially at the school I'm at now, which is like a private school. Kids, you know, are told that you can be anything. It leads to a lot of anxiety because, like, you're you're at this point, you're 18 years old or whatever. You have literally infinity paths in front of you, which you're being told I can take any path. That is overwhelming for someone who doesn't even know who they are yet. And to say like, well, you can't do anything. You can do these things though. Um, is maybe a little bit more freeing and a little bit less um, anxiety inducing. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, so so we've got a lot of different conversation points. I just want to go go yeah. back to a couple of them in, in reverse chronological order. So just to, to respond to your point a bit more directly, Will, on um, the, the dangers of self-report from well-being. Yes. Yes, yes, My yes. argument would be in response to that, that that's not a reason not to do them, but it's a reason to try to do them as well as possible and remind people, this is why I made the point yeah. about interpreting research, to make it very clear that this tells you these things and these are the potential biases that are creeping in and we should be very much aware of those as as you both stated some examples of those and that isn't a reason to not do them it's a reason to do them and interpret them adequately and then try to put that into a holistic picture of what can we learn from this and i think often people say people kind of take this jump of saying well these are self-report and there's these biases therefore just ignore all that stuff it's rubbish and I, i think that's a big jump because we can learn a lot if you do a survey of ten thousand people in rigorous studies you can learn things from this value you can gain value knowledge we have gained value knowledge from these kinds of things but we shouldn't conclude that well i'll become more happy if i just follow the the roots from all these things and one important reason for that is so i loved uh, the first episode nick and i released on our podcast with todd cashton who's an individual differences researcher at his core 
And this theme has come up a number of times, a number of time conversations, the importance of paying attention to individual differences between people. And that is a huge issue in research and human flourishing and well-being because the differences amongst people are so massive that it's Or if he studies a lot of identical twins. Yeah, so that's where you that's often yeah. studies are identical twins because they yeah. gather some data about, you know, if you if you have different similar different environments, what what how does that change the course of one of their lives? Um but attention to individual differences is vital in well-being research because we shouldn't be extrapolating this to our lives immediately. We should be trying to know, okay, well, I can apply maybe some things here based on my course in life, my self-understanding and so on, but not the whole package. Yeah, that I love that because I think that, that people are going to a binary of what you're saying is essentially like gospel, this study, look at this study, this study is going to guide everything, or this study is nonsense. And it is somewhere in the middle. You can do as well as you can. I think there has to be a lot of openness, <clears throat> you know, stuff like this, the studies of like, you know, the Kinsey studies of like sex and stuff like that were obviously done by, you know, there, there were the people that were being studied were like inmates that were a lot more like sexual abusers and 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 predators and stuff like that so that's an excuse so we have to have openness about that i had um peter bogosian and james Lindsay in my podcast who did those those hoax studies did you guys see yep. those those hoax papers yeah, i know about those yeah. <clears throat> that was really wild and and i see it a lot of these people who are who are in these you know they're in biology they're a biology you know phd or something like that but they're in it to be an activist to just have those you know, the alphabet after their name so that they can go out and push their, their activism, but it's not, it's not good science. So I think almost having like, um, like in, in social media, they call it like open source coding. Like how was this study done? So the commoners, you know, I'm not, I'm not a researcher. Like the commoners can understand how did you get this information? It's all open. So you know where the flaws might be, where the, where the positives are, where the biases come in, all stuff like that. Is that done a lot in the research that you guys um, have seen and done? Is it like open source so we know how the studies are all taking place? So we can probably not enough. Um, was, this is a whole another conversation and tangent. I think a lot of academics would argue that the academic world has the same level of kind of, in some cases, corruption and issues that any other part, you know, of, of life might have. And so that might come down to the peer review process. It might come down to the journal. It might come down to the who individual funded it, researcher right? who funded it. Yeah. There's a lot of different things that can kind of play a role in this. Um, you know, there's really, really famous psychological concepts that are being seriously called into question. You probably know, like the Stanford prison experiment, yeah. and Philip Zimbardo and some of those things. Um, so certainly I don't think there's any particular, it goes back to the original point we made about, you know, um, academic research. There's no study that's impervious to criticism. And I don't think there's any piece of research that applies to everybody everywhere all the time. Well, two, two things I want to say on this first, sometimes that's the outcome. That doesn't mean that the research wasn't valuable because we like to know it's important to know the causes behind things and mm. the reasons why things happen and so on. And then we can understand yeah. them better. Um, the second is that sometimes you get counterintuitive results yeah. on, on things. Um, so while I try to think from one from well-being research, I'll just give an example from the science of learning. I've worked a lot on the science of learning, and there you get claim, you know, you get research showing things like the best kind of learning is effortful learning. So teachers, educators, more generally lecturers, spend a huge amount of time 
trying to make teaching resources as clear as possible and help students understand as quickly as possible. And the mark of a successful lesson or class is the students left the room and they just got it. And it felt like it was just effortless learning this stuff. And their teacher was great because they just sailed through this stuff without any effort at all. But the evidence shows quite clearly that the more effortful the learning process is, the more gains you get long-term because the, the, the more you have to think about something and retrieve learning, the more it gets um, embedded in your long-term memory. Because you more have neuroplasticity, right? Think about what we mentioned earlier, that pleasure-pain paradox as well, like do hard things. We, we talked about the flow state. One of the initial stages of a flow state is really a, a stress state. Right. It's responding yeah. to environmental cues and kind of saying, OK, I need to rise to the occasion and, and expand a little bit beyond whatever I was prior. Yeah. So that then yields all kinds of. So for a start, that seems quite counterintuitive. You're really struggling to do something You're like, look, I'm really not learning this very well. This, this shouldn't be so difficult. But often that's a sign that you're learning it better because you're really having to think about it more in, in a more hard way. But then that gives rise to all kinds of counterintuitive practical points about good education. For example, if you make this beautifully constructed handout for your class that, that the student looks at, they're like, this is great. Okay, I don't need to write anything. I've, I've got it. I've got my revision notes here. Well, that's terrible for their learning because they don't, they don't write anything on it. It'd be better no to give processing. them a blank piece of paper yeah. and talk. And they're writing things down, they're drawing it out in their own way, thinking about it, they're sketching their mind on the page in a certain way, and they're actively learning more from it. This, this was kind of a for me a personal sort of revolution when I learned this stuff. And I was like, my teaching resources are rubbish. They look great, but students aren't yeah. having to do enough work. Um, so you get counterintuitive, you know, studies that try to show things like, well, if you if you make your PowerPoint slides a bit less clear, sometimes that can have learning benefits and so on. On this, I recommend a book called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. It came out in 2014, Harvard University Press. That goes okay. through these kinds of claims. But that, that's just an example um, of where you don't get the research showing, oh yeah, we knew this all along. Quite the opposite. You're like, a counterintuitive claim actually has more support in favor of it. And in the case of well-being research, you know, it might be something like, let's say people argued that um, accomplishment and achievements are really good for your well-being over time. Therefore, uh, working a certain number of hours a week and and not kind of sitting around doing nothing is, is really good for your well-being over time. And then a study came along and said, actually, well, no, spending quite a lot of time sitting doing nothing, inverted commas, if that means mindfulness practice, if that yeah. means break away from what you're doing is better for your well-being over time. And spending less time working and more time cultivating relationships is better for your well-being, that would go against a purportedly intuitive claim but that relies on that assumption being true that accomplishment is good long term that's just one possible example that's actually a great i think connection back to the other primary sort of conceptualization of human flourishing and john maybe you'd walk you know will through this a little bit the harvard measure because there's a really yeah. really key difference a couple differences but a really important one that distinguishes the harvard measure from PERMA, UPenn's measure, and it's actually a, the absence of achievement or accomplishment um, mm. as one of the domains. So yeah, John just put it in the link, but John, would you walk us through the six domains a bit? Yeah, sure. So this is a more recent measure than positive psychology. Uh, positive psychology is sort of early 20th century. This was you know, being put forward, the PERMA model, as Nick explained. The Human Flourishing Program, um, the, the kind of the main, main article, the seminal article by Tyler Van Der Weel, the director of the Human Flourishing Program, was published in 2017. And 
they put forward an account of flourishing that has five domains to it, like PERMA. It actually has a sixth domain, I'll, I'll describe it in a moment. And those five domains are happiness and life satisfaction first, second, mental and physical health, third, meaning and purpose, fourth, character of virtue, and fifth, close social relationships. Mm. And they argue that flourishing isn't reducible to these, but these are kind of at least part of what we mean by flourishing and ought to be features of any plausible account. They also then define flourishing more broadly than positive psychology. In positive psychology, at least with the PERMA model, it would be psychological well-being. The Human Flourishing Program defined it as complete human well-being, a state in which all aspects of a person's life are good, and sometimes as a societal good, broadly construed. And they draw upon the empirical evidence behind positive psychology, but also literature covering public health studies, empirical studies that um, show substantial contributors to well-being to try and offer this broader study. They had a sixth domain, financial and material stability. Uh, the argument for that being that to flourish long term, so for longer than a month, for example, you need sufficient financial and material resources. Yeah. But they put that as a sixth because the five key domains are ones that they argue you pursue as ends in themselves. If you like, um, Nick mentioned this word autotelic earlier. Autotelic, you know, auto meaning self and telos meaning goal, a thing you do as an end in itself. And Positive psychology argues that those five domains in PERMA also you pursue as ends in themselves. They argue these five domains you pursue as ends in themselves, but the sixth mm. financial material stability you don't pursue as an end in itself, or people don't tend to at least, rather they pursue it to support those other ends. But nonetheless, you've got to have it to flourish for yeah. more than a week, a day, or a month. Depending yeah. on where you are, of course, because, you, Will, your initial post that I think led to this conversation brings us back to the second episode of our podcast, Flourish FM, with Emily Estahani-Smith. She's got a terrific book called The Power of Meaning, and she's got a TED Talk that's been viewed, I don't even remember, John, millions and millions and millions of times. Right? Nine million times, I think. There you go. Um, and in the opening chapters, I think right in actually in the introduction of the book, one of the things she does is lay out all the statistics about life satisfaction, fulfillment globally. And the fact of the matter is some of the materialistically poorest nations in the world also will have some of the highest scores in terms of satisfaction and fulfillment, right? Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a genius to look at the Western world and in particular the US where we're sitting yeah. with tons and tons and tons of material wealth and access to all sorts of things, but skyrocketing ill-being numbers and, and mental illness numbers and, and things yeah. of that nature. So there's interesting interplay and dynamics here, but but certainly the core tenet here is it's a going to generally be a little harder to flourish if you are worried about food, water, shelter, right? Core, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that old Princeton study about like, can money buy happiness? They landed on like $75,000, which again, changes. I remember that like years and years ago. And it, it was basically saying that you can get things like <clears throat> you get a vacation. If your refrigerator breaks, you can get a new one. Like you have like heat. Like you get the basics. And the way I explain it is like, I have an old Corvette. It's not worth anything. It's worth like $9,000, but it's loud and it's fast and it's fun. And the difference between, I'm like a car guy, I love working on cars. So the difference between not having a car and having my, you know, $9,000 Corvette 
is a bigger jump in like satisfaction than going from my Corvette to a brand new Lamborghini. Like mm. it's like the difference once you get above 75,000 that they found was like, it's actually not that big. It's like going to vacation. I'm in LA. So like going to Santa Barbara with my family it, versus not having a vacation is bigger than going to like Bora Bora or something mm. like just getting those things. But that seemed like it rings true. For well, you guys? That, like, that study was excellent reasons were given for calling it into question around April 2021. Uh, there's an article published in The Economist on that. I haven't dug deep into that research yet, actually. I want to. I have a little bit. Again, that, that goes in my gut, though. That makes sense. It makes sense that if you have, you are happier. Well, I, I, I had a car that didn't have air conditioning for a while. And I go up and down the hill to the valley. And in September, it's 105 degrees and I don't have air conditioning. I was less satisfied with my life. Once I got air conditioning, even though I was still in a crappy car, but I had air conditioning, that made a difference. It makes sense that if you have those basics, like you were saying, Nick, and maybe 75 grand for like a family of four was just like the number that they had at the time. I'm curious what was off about that. Because again, this goes with like my gut goes, that makes sense. But it doesn't mean that's yeah, true. Yeah. My gut can be steering me wrong all the time. Well, so, so some of the pieces here, and it actually ties together a lot of these threads, because like John said, about a year ago, another study came out also out of UPenn, although not the Pod Psych Center, that called this study or these series of studies into question. What do you define as happiness, yeah. right? His data showed that happiness is not going to move, but life satisfaction will, and he couldn't find an upper limit to that trend, right? So we're talking about like kind of flatlining and diminishing returns. He was put pushing back against that. Now, I haven't looked in the last, I don't know, probably eight months or oh. so, but he was called into question because he wouldn't share the data, right? So this is flying well, in the open face source, right? Of <laughs> open yeah. source, right? So you've got this debate back and forth. And what do you mean by the metrics? What's your sample? Who are you looking yeah. at? Right. And then there's an, a hugely important key variable here, which is what do you use the money for? There's a lot of good research on materialistic values being correlated with ill being, for instance. Right. There's a lot of other good research on spending money on experiences and people and impact yeah. and things of that nature and having a much more pronounced positive effect on well-being levels. So there's there's a ton of nuance to this argument. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, what are you spending? If you start a nonprofit and you give, you know, like good prosthetic limbs to kids who, you know, don't have legs, like you'll probably get more satisfaction than if you buy a gold-plated Rolls-Royce and roll up and down Sunset Boulevard with it. The health thing you mentioned, John, is also a big one that I didn't I didn't hear that. Is that in the PERMA? Is that health. part of the PERMA well, one? So, yeah, I'm glad you asked this. So let's tease yeah. out some, it's important to tease out some differences here between positive psychology's account of flourishing and the human flourishing okay. programs. So what one thing that... So Tyler Van der Weel argues are absent in positive psychology and other measures of psychological well-being are health, character, and virtue. Now, Nick mentioned the PERMA model. There are also developments of the PERMA model that add bits, you know, add other letters to it. So you get like PERMA H, which I, I believe Geelong Grammar School in Australia kind of supplemented their account PERMA to add H at the end for health because it didn't have it. And you get PERMA V, which is vitality, which is kind of how able you feel that's right okay that energy sense. you know yeah. so someone who's really hung over has very low vitality mm -hmm. someone who feels full of energy when they wake up in the morning has high vitality um but in the perma model at least you know 
they, it does pay attention to character, I think, with character strengths, for example. But there are many objections of being leveled against positive psychology doesn't pay enough attention to virtue, to being a, a morally good person, and that its, its emphasis is quite on, on the individual rather than groups of people, and that physical health isn't really attended to as much as psychological health. I mean, it, it accounts for flourishing in terms of psychological well-being in the per model, right? So that's that seems fair. Um, the human flourishing argue that you should include health, mental and physical, in account of flourishing, even if you just define flourishing as well-being, and that character yeah. and virtue should be included, because these are often ends themselves rather than things that pursue brother ends. But also, I mean, surely to flourish, you have to be living a decent maybe not a fully virtuous life, but at least a, not a bad, morally bad life, right? So you need to have to say something about being a good person in there. And going right back to Aristotle and Eudaimonia, it's really about yeah. being a good person, living a virtuous life. Not that that was necessarily the correct kind of flourishing, but that's where research on, in the West on flourishing really begins. And the notion mm. of flourishing gains, some, you know, gains itself as a concept in the West. So it seems that we it's quite weird to not talk about being virtuous or being a good person in account of flourishing. So there's some difference. Well, so I so I would argue, John, that it that PERMA does, right? Character strengths fall under six sets of virtues, right? There are six umbrella sets that these 24 character strengths fall under. But John still raises a really interesting philosophical question as well, which we talked to one of our guests about. So I think that's the, the problem with a lot of the people who would you be categorized as like woke or whatever, is like. I'm such a good person because I, whatever, changed my Instagram thing or whatever it is. That's a tricky one if you're asking people because it's all their perception. People who have an inflated sense of self-satisfaction are going to say that they're really virtuous. How do you guys get around that? John, I'd like to hear from the philosopher. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, do they apply like, like, you know, Kant's uh, categorical imperative? Like, do they... Do they think about that? I don't think many of them do. I don't know how many philosophy majors end up getting into like thinking like that, but maybe they do. I don't know. So, yeah. what kind of what kind of decision process are we thinking of here? The, the, and who is the they? Just applying to people in general. How many people? People think in general. If you say like, how virtuous are you? How virtuous of a life? Like a lot of that could be if you're surrounded by you know cult leaders would say that they're very virtuous. Right. Some of the worst people in history. That's why you brought up Hitler. I would say would would say he's very virtuous. So you know, yes. Stalin would probably believe that he did. Yeah. What do we do with that? Yeah, I mean, there is this philosophical problem going goes way back called the guise of the good, um, which is roughly the idea of human and, and really a point about moral psychology that human beings often believe they're aiming to the art or the argument behind one position here is that human beings often aim towards what they believe, or perhaps even always aim towards they believe is good, but often fall massively short of it. And, you know, and, and if they have a completely distorted vision of what is good. So to go to the case of yeah. something like Hitler, for example, if we tried to apply that argument to Hitler, it would be the, the claim that Hitler believed what he was doing was best for the people of Germany at the time to give them more Lebensraum and a breathing space. And then this would be best for Germany. And, and yet, yeah, but he was just a monster. So had a completely skewed vision of what was the right thing to do, but he believed this was the right thing to do. And so you get accounts of this going right back to you know, Plato, the idea of evil being a privation, that it's that the person aims at the good, but they fall so far short of the good that evil takes place as a privation of good rather than aiming at evil. And, and the debate here is whether a human being can rationally aim at what they know is the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Uh, because it's quite odd to think that 
the argument behind that is that it's quite odd for human to think that human beings just know this is terrible, but I'm going to do it anyway. But often they're like, no, this is justifiable. I'm going to do this, right. which is terrible way of reasoning. There's a whole huge long-standing philosophical debate around that. In the case of Hitler, if you try to apply that argument there, it would be something like Hitler believed that what he was doing was right, but was a monster, was a psychopath, a sociopath. How would he do filling out one of these questionnaires, though? You know, like, how would he do all of these questionnaires? He'd probably say, I'm flourishing. I mean, I mean, health-wise, even, like, I, lo- I love that, that saying that a, a sick person wants one thing, a healthy person wants 10,000 things. I think that's why I love the, the vitality, health, you know, element of these. But, you know, when you're on meth, <laughs> like, like, at least when you're high, you're feeling great. I mean, he looked great. So yeah, like he would he would fill out these studies and and be like wow this guy is flourishing no am I am I would he not oh, um, well yeah sorry John no because go I'm gonna argue against the whole idea that Hitler could live a meaningful life so yeah I, <laughs> well so so let's get into that though because in our third episode when we chatted with Scott Barry Kaufman who's one of the world's most famous psychologists he really kind of pushed back against this notion of flourishing as the aim, right? And and that he pushes for self-actualization because of this element of transcendence, this element of going beyond oneself, being connected with this greater whole, this greater good. Even that, I think, is tricky and tense because, listen, I've lived on both coasts of the United States. I grew up born and raised in the Midwest. I've been around the richest of the rich. I've spent a lot of time around the poorest of the poor. In my estimation, most people care about other people, right? They're not just entirely selfish and narcissistic. They have some sort of meaning. They have some sort of purpose, but we often differ on who we care about most and where we prioritize and direct some of those actions, which to me, in, in part, speaks to kind of some of the elements you bring up in your work, in your shows, and, and trying to bring people more to the middle. Hey, we've got a lot of yeah. shared values and virtues, right. but we're directing them to different populations yeah. and efforts. Yeah, John, jump back well, in. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go back full circle and argue that I, I, I mean, I, I need to give this argument some more thought, but I mean, there have been various talks I've been to where people have tried to argue things like um, Hannibal Lecter could flourish you know, a serial killer could flourish. And given then some account of flourishing that argues that could be the case. Especially if it's a self-analysis, right? To some degree. Yeah. Um, okay. And I think that if we, I think it would show that there's a serious problem with our account of flourishing if it allows deeply evil people yeah. to flourish. Not just, no, Great. I don't say yeah. deeply evil, just evil people to flourish. And that's why it's so important to have character virtue brought in there. And Nick's argument that positive psychology does attend to this vision is interesting. And I and I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. Um, I think that's, that's an important way to play off the debate between these different measures of flourishing, mm-hmm. whether indeed that's fair to, to argue that positive psychology doesn't pay enough attention to it. Putting that aside for a moment, though, I think that to flourish, you need to be living at least a morally decent life, certainly not causing harm to others. You don't have to be, you know, the Dalai Lama, but you need to be leading a morally respectful life, virtuous in at least a minimal sense. And that if you are living an evil life, to say that someone evil is living a meaningful life, I think is a problem for our account of meaning. And that we should yeah. look at that carefully and think, wait a minute, that we shouldn't be in a position where we're saying this person lived a really meaningful life who committed genocide 
or was a serial killer. No, that's a problem, and we need to revisit that. What it, and, and you know, in the case of Emily's book, The Power of Meaning, Emily S. Fine Smith, I don't think we get that account from that. You know, we discussed that briefly, but in I think in there, yeah. if we look at the pillars of meaning and what they involve, she has these four pillars of meaning, and that they are very they virtuous ways to spend your life, you know, a sense of belonging with others and so on, um, telling a story about your life um, that, that constructs a good narrative of it. These, these involve attention to virtue and involve living yeah. a minimally virtuous life such that you couldn't really live a meaningful life. You couldn't live a meaningful life for Hitler. Hitler did not lead, lead a meaningful life, I would argue. Well, he might have been a psychopath, right? I mean, do psychopaths and who do exist, even in small numbers, do they they throw a wrench into this to some degree, right? Like into the studies because they have a mental disorder. So there's that's a great question, and I think we need to bring up. And I'm not as familiar with this line of research, John. Maybe you are, but Corey Keyes has a conceptualization and really these four quadrants, and argues that you can have a mental illness and flourish. Yeah. Right, that the two are not mutually exclusive, right? So that kind of throws a monkey wrench into things a little bit. Whether or not you, you know, sociopath is the same thing as sort of these different types of mental illnesses is a whole nother nuanced debate. But I'd also, I totally agree with John, and I bring it back to kind of the the bridge between philosophy and psychology on some level. When I was teaching uh, the sociology class in Los Angeles. We do a lot of Alistair McIntyre, right? So the veil of ignorance. So the, the basic premise behind the veil of ignorance is that if you dropped a veil of ignorance in front of somebody, so they could not see how actions or policies were going to affect them, what would they choose to do, right? If you removed them from the equation and just said, what's fair, what's just, mm -hmm. right? What's the right way to do something, not knowing how it's going to impact you, what would they choose, hmm. right? Um, the so then when you come back to something like virtue, so and John, so we're going back and forth between virtue and character in Harvard and engagement in Perma, yeah. right? So the engagement breaks down into these character strengths. There's 24 of them that build up to these six virtues. Well, how did they arrive at this set of 24 character strengths? They brought together 50, 60 different researchers from around the world and kind of looked at different cultures, different governments, different ideologies, and basically said, like, what do most people agree on, right? What do most decent people agree is good to have as a human being? Gratitude, self-regulation, optimism, appreciation of beauty and excellence, all these sorts of things. And I think on some level, what these ideas speak to is Sure, you could have a sense of purpose and that you are doing something good for a community. So Hitler might have felt a great sense of purpose around what he was doing for Germans, right? But I think it also has to be accompanied by the absence of negatively impacting a broad swath of people too. And that's what his story <laughs> obviously yeah. and significantly dramatically lacks, right? You and I are both longtime teachers yeah. in Jewish schools, so we're highly sensitive to this. Um, so I, to me, that brings back to McIntyre a little bit as well, right? If you put that veil of ignorance um, what would you choose to do if you knew how it wasn't going to affect you? And I think if, you know, that asshole sitting right here today and said like, hey, if you were on the receiving end of this, would you still call it meaning and purposeful? And would you still say it's a flourishing life? 
who, who the hell knows? Cause he was a sociopath. Yeah. Right. But I, I think most people would say, no, it does not. There has to be the building of something good for others and ideally paired with the absence of something bad. Yeah, and and yeah. Nick's also uh, drawn attention to a, a point that, that um, allows me to better develop something I was saying a moment ago about the reasons why Emily S. Farney Smith's account wouldn't say that Hitler lived a meaningful life. I mentioned that she has these four pillars of meaning, things that make it meaning. You know, I mentioned storytelling and, and the narrative you would tell of your life, you know, to yeah. some degree is to map on with the truth. Right now, Hitler says, "Hey, I've lived this really purposeful, meaningful life. Look at all the good I've done for the world. Look at how I've, you know, um, yeah. pushed forward uh, the people who were living under my rule." It just would be completely false, right? It it it, it wouldn't have promoted meaning for others um, in any significant sense. It's just promoted suffering. So, the storytelling side of it would be absent in meaning as well okay. as belonging. I mean, what kind of you know, good, healthy relationships that a totality yeah. wants to have with others and so on, right? So it seems like, um, it seems like a lot of this w- will just be more effective if people have a critical eye about themselves and a, a, a more accurate view of themselves and who they are. You know, it's shocking. I gave it like a, just an anecdote earlier, but like it's shocking how people are so unaware of who they are, the way they act in the world. Um, and then young people population that all of us have, have been dealing with, like they don't know who the hell they are yet. They're trying to figure this out. It, I guess it would just be a lot of this is, is like a reflective thing. And it goes back to the perception is reality stuff. But yeah, I guess we, there has to be some element, like you're saying of storytelling where they go, you're acting this way. How does this affect others? And that will spark some empathy in other people. There has to be some element of that because pe- people are so isolated sometimes, especially after COVID. These kids were, were so isolated and they were telling themselves these own narratives about who they were and what the world was. And they didn't have any kind of engagement with, with um, outside things that challenge that. People mm-hmm. don't want to be challenged. If you think that you're a good person and someone says, hey, read this book, if you read this book, you're going to realize that you're a real asshole. Then they go, why would I read that book? I'm not going to do that then. Yeah. That's a really scary realization for people. And I get why they don't want to do it. But for us to try and solve this, you almost have to do that. You have to challenge your own ideas. But how do you get people to do that? Well, that brings us back to Todd as well. And a key term that he uses in uh, the first book I ever read that brought me into sort of Todd's world and research that he wrote with Robert Biswasdiener is the called the upside of our dark side, right? And in it, he talks about a concept called distress tolerance, right? And it brings us back to Anna Lemke and do hard things like you have to be willing to engage and endure and navigate some of that unpleasantness in order to grow in any way, shape or form. It's also a theme in John's point about good learning, right? And ethical learning. It's a theme in the flow state, which is a, considered by many to be a form of optimal experience. So I completely agree And that, I would argue, is also a counter to a hedonistic lifestyle, which, by the way, is not highly correlated 
with life satisfaction. A eudaimonic lifestyle is, a hedonistic yeah. is not, which is an important distinguishment. But if you're only worried about pleasantness and you're unwilling to do the hard work to deconstruct your biases and think about the pain you've caused others, you're never going to grow, yeah. right? And if you're not growing, Scott Barry Kaufman would argue, you're not on a trajectory towards self-actualization, which I think he would say is, is really the ultimate aim of, of life. Yeah. Uh, we could talk. I think we almost did an hour and a half, but like, I feel like I could talk to you guys forever about this. I, I love. <laughs> we brought it back to education. I'm glad you brought it back to education. We need yeah. to focus in on education more for these last <laughs> few minutes, at least. Yeah, um, were you going to say please. something? Sorry, though. No, no. I was just going to say, like, I could just, just, it's, it, there's, it's so nuanced. I love nuance. I love complexity. I love just like scratching my head, like, ah, oh, this is frustrating. I like that because that's. Yeah. I think that means that, like you said, like we're getting somewhere with this. But yeah, John, please um, share your, your your thoughts on how this applies in in the educational context. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's uh, yeah. Let's start with storytelling, um, but in a slightly different tangent in the sense that the importance of construct teaching students how to construct a good narrative of their lives is important in another respect in education for their metacognition. So research suggests that most people have bad metacognition, right? Metacognition being your awareness of your level of skills and knowledge and your kind of self-regulation skills to do something about that, to improve your learning um, methods and processes in response to where your level of knowledge and skills are. And all kinds of factors affect this. So someone with low self-esteem will, you know, for example, downplay the level of knowledge and skills. Someone with a huge ego will often upplay them and various psychological illusions um, play into this, such as the Dunning-Kruger effect, the tendency of that's quite common to significantly overestimate one's competence in some area and underestimate one's lack of competence, right? And research suggests that most people have pretty poor metacognition, that it's not calibrated very well. And the studies on metacognition show that if you can really promote this amongst students it can really enhance their learning and long-term potential so that involves partly constructing a correct narrative of your life of how you learn of how, how how skilled you are in some area of how much you can improve your skills of how much you know and so on of the ways you learn how you can do something about this and that's going to be one part of a wider narrative but all of the parts of your narrative relate to that you know if your self-esteem impacts your ability to learn then the narrative is not just i know this much it's what are the factors impacting how much I think I know about how much I know? Well, maybe it's yeah. my character. Maybe it's my lack of confidence here. So an attendance to person's well-being as a whole can support metacognition as a whole, which can in turn support learning a great deal. And that relates to narrative. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's complex, but I think it's, it's talking about it is something that can spark the interest in people to to look further and then do some of that self reflection. I think that's that's what you just need. You need that that desire to want to learn about this stuff and to think about it and to think about if you want like do you want to be happy? Kids are like yeah, all right. Well now you got to really think about it. What does that even mean? Let's define it. Let's break it down. It's not just going to be handed to you on a platter. It's you got to you got to really think your way through this. And I think that research, even as flawed as it can be, is a it's like a Jordan Peterson thing. It's like having a bad map is better than no map at all. Like, what, <laughs> like, like having a, like in a target, you need some sort of target. So, you know, how do you do that? And so there are flaws to these maps, these, yeah. these social science studies, but 
what do you what do you what's the alternative? Just make things up as you go. Yeah, randomity. Right. Yeah. Right. 100% complete Absolutely. chaos. Yeah. I, I would yeah. add one more piece too to the education piece. It just kind of occurred to me as we we're talking about distress tolerance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John, I can't necessarily speak to what it's like in, in the UK, although I imagine it's quite similar. You know, well, like we are often in the business of of whether implicitly or explicitly sending the message that being wrong is a really, really bad thing, right? And they spend the better part of a decade and a half learning that lesson and then develop into adults that probably have a pretty visceral fear of being wrong. Coming back to your comment about challenging yourself, getting into the weeds, distress tolerance, like oh, my entire worldview can get disrupted by this one perspective, this one study, this one book. That's a really, really uncomfortable feeling. I I, I don't propose to have a solution, but I'm, I'm sort of raising the question if we're sort of um, a part of the so. problem as educators when we push I think that so. message. I think kids are so failure averse. They're told that if you get an A minus, then you'll never get into Harvard. You'll never get into Penn. And then right. it's like, but uh, right. then they'll have a breakdown when they don't get in the pen. I go, oh, why? You, you, you know, I'm not going to get into Yale. Why? Did you want to study our Nick Christakis? Like, is there, is there a specific professor there or something? No. Why? What was your major? I don't know. <laughs> Why are you so, like, they just, they're, they're yeah, they're programmed to just, like, achieve, achieve, achieve. That William Dereichowitz book, um, Excellent Sheep, I think is really good. Just like, and then, and then they don't even know for necessarily why yeah yeah life application is so important in education like teaching kids i teach history like teaching kids about the war of 1812 they don't give a shit so but <laughs> if i explain it in a context of like you just had a fight in the classroom and now i'm sitting you guys right back next to each other you're gonna fight again because the one who's lost to you is like i should have lost you i'm stronger than you i could beat you up i was like that's the war of 1812 <laughs> you know what i mean so like <laughs> i have to explain this stuff like this is how you get your curfew extended this is how you get a girl to notice you whatever it is because without that i think school is really really difficult um agree yeah thank you guys for having this conversation with me and and um and nick for reaching out to to do this because just one little post and then we can just extrapolate talk for an hour and a half we could have probably talked we could talk probably for like an eight hour work day on this yeah yeah let me, just, um, let me share a couple of links in case you haven't already seen this conversation began with you asking should we be aiming at happiness and should education Mm -hmm. do that? So there is research that suggests that widespread pursuits of happiness contribute to increasing mental health problems amongst young people. Uh, Especially when we define it more more accurately, right? There's an article I've just shared with you um, from the Washington Post. Our obsession with happiness is making our kids miserable. Yeah, last year on that. And here's an academic article published in the Journal of uh, Social and Clinical Psychology in 2014 on um, how pursuing happiness, um, desperately seeking happiness, increases the risk of depression. Um, So having happiness, I mean, again, this comes back to how... Maybe it's self-absorbed. Maybe that's an element of it. It comes back to how we define happiness in the first place. Yeah. There is research that suggests that if you're desperately pursuing happiness, or not even desperately, just but that being your aim, that that is yeah. contributing towards mental health problems, particularly among young people. Yeah, Very depending cool. on how you define it, right? If that's the yeah, that's the yeah, thing. It, it, it would need to be looked at how how it's being defined in those studies and so on. But I mean, it might be more things like um, what 
what the generally taken definition of happiness is amongst young people. Mm. Because I see, not- John, as a philosophy person, I see why this would appeal to you. Because it is about pulling everything apart in a really deep way. It seems so aligned. Like these studies and stuff seem so aligned with philosophy. Well, thank, thanks guys for having this conversation with me. This is great. I'll put it out on my, on my channels and, you know, hey, and hopefully you. people will check in on, on your podcast and I'll definitely check it out and listen to it. Awesome, man. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. no, it was. I, I love these conversations. I really hey. appreciate you guys and the work you're doing. Uh, really cool. Our pleasure. Same to you and uh, good luck with your school year yeah. and going part time. I hope that goes well. Take care, John. Great to meet you. Hey, you yeah. too. Thank you. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that, so your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.